Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The U.S. Open Tennis Tournament is rounding off a thrilling summer of sports. Over the past 10 days, the best in women's and men's tennis have been battling it out in the first major competition since Wimbledon. In the summer, I went and watched Wimbledon and we went and we watched women's doubles and no one was sat there going, oh, you know, oh, it's not this as the men's or it's not that or, oh, you know, for a women's game, it's quite good. It was like, no, this is an incredible game of tennis and we're just going to enjoy it as an incredible game of tennis. That's Lauren Herrier, a professional footballer and the boss of Equal Kicks, a consultancy which does research and analysis in women's sports. A few weeks ago, it was women's football that was dominating the headlines. That global spotlight of the Women's World Cup was a big moment for Lauren. My journey as a player has been kind of very up and down, so I've seen lots of different leagues here in England. I grew up playing in Charlton Athletic Academy, and when I think about kind of the resourcing we had then, it, it wasn't great. So we'd had our funding pulled out of the Charlton Academy because the men got relegated from the Premiership. And I've gone through various experiences where it's been, we're just being disadvantaged or we're facing these issues because we're girls, because we're women. Throughout the 20th century, women's football has been subjected to a lot of restrictions. In many countries, it was even banned for a long time. The first official Women's World Cup wasn't held until 1991. 30 years later, women's football is in a much better place. Now if I'm going about in my football kit, I'll have people come and talk to me like, oh, my daughter plays and, oh, I watched this Lionesses game the other week. And people were just excited about women's football. So I think it was important the World Cup could continue to bring this excitement to women's football, to women's sport. More people watched the Women's World Cup this year than ever before. But all that deserved popularity masks a few stubborn problems around how women's football is perceived compared to the men's game. This idea that the men's game is like the pinnacle of football and I love watching men's football there. <laughs> like, I really enjoy it. But like I say, I enjoy that in its own right and I don't think for the women's game to be successful, it needs to be... The men's game, it doesn't. It has its own uniqueness to it. And I think trying to constantly compare it or the idea that to be a success, women's football has to be as close to men's football as possible. I just don't agree with that. And as I say, I feel in other sports, it doesn't happen quite as much. That idea of just enjoying the sport for what it is. In the long struggle for women's football to be taken as seriously as the men's game, campaigners and players have largely focused on equality, whether in terms of salary or television coverage. When it comes to the game itself, well, things are definitely equal there. Men and women today play with the same-sized footballs, on the same-sized pitches, and their matches last for the same length of time. 
But is that the most sensible way to organise things? Women are, on average, smaller and slower than men. So does it really make sense to make women play according to the rules written for men? This isn't just an academic question, by the way. There's evidence to suggest that the women's game is harder on the players. And women are at a higher risk of injuries compared to men. Sex-based differences aren't uncommon in sports. In tennis, for example, there are differences in the way women and men play matches. In Grand Slam tournaments like the US Open, women play the best of three sets rather than five sets for the men. Is it time for football, and for that matter other sports too, to start acknowledging the physical differences between the sexes? This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, how much does a person's sex matter in the sport that they play? So, okay, uh, good evening. Welcome to the uh, post-match press conference for the Team England. Abby Burdick's The Economist. Could you speak to the level of play of this World Cup and the competitiveness compared to World Cups past? I think uh, this World Cup is incredibly challenging. The level of, of the women's game has increased so much and it's really exciting. Recently returned from the World Cup in Australia and hopefully just about recovered from her moment in the limelight there is our science correspondent, Abby Bertix. Hi, Abby. Hi, Alec. Thanks for having me. Now, before we continue on with our scientific chat, I think it's probably worth you explaining a bit about your background. You're The Economist science correspondent. But before then, tell me what you were doing. Right before I joined The Economist, actually, I was playing volleyball in Greece professionally. So your writing about sports makes complete sense, uh, which is very important for the rest of our conversation. Now, this is a complicated topic because on the one hand, we absolutely should be treating women and men equally in sport. But what you're arguing is that we as consumers of sport and also the sporting bodies themselves, they, that we can't ignore that there are differences between the bodies of men and women. Yeah, that's right. There's kind of always been a bias towards men's sport. You can even just look at the syllables we have in the way that we call things. You have the World Cup and then you have the Women's World Cup. You look at the rules of the sports and you look at the scientific studies. Most scientific studies about sports and the way that bodies work and even medicine have been done on men and then they're applied later on to both sexes. White men generally even. So I've been looking at this to look at the biological differences, the physiological differences, and see where these differences might actually make a difference and whether looking at these differences helps us to better understand and appreciate women's sport as compared to men's sport. It's just worth saying before we continue this discussion that we're talking about men and women in a binary way in this conversation, but there there is also a discussion to be had about Trans people, intersex people, people with disorders of sex development as well. There's a lot of differences there. Yeah, it's a really, really important point, which raises its own challenges that also need to be discussed. And it's also really important to recognize like the gender diversity and within genders and between genders and people who don't necessarily neatly fit into those buckets. But it makes things way more complicated to discuss. Well, let's just park that complexity for now. I mean, it's something we'll probably come back to in a future episode. The point of today's show, though, is to ask the question about how men and women play sports differently when we take into account their biological and anatomical differences. Abby, would you mind just going through what those differences are? 
To make sweeping generalizations, women are generally shorter, lighter, slower, can't jump as high. Yet for football, you look at the rules and the equipment and the size of things, and for men's game and the women's game, everything is the same. So that kind of begs the question, if you have someone who is slower, shorter, and they're playing with the same rules and the same equipment, they're not necessarily playing the same game. So what are the some of the impacts of that then? I assume... If someone is shorter and and smaller and so on, if they're essentially running the same distance as a bigger person, are they more prone to injuries? Are there different ways that they play? What are the differences that happen then in the the end? Yeah, so it, it could lead to injuries. Studies around injuries are really difficult to do. I think one of the examples that I found most convincing was about the goal size. So for goalkeepers, women are a little shorter, so they might not be able to cover the goal as well. Um, People have given women goalkeepers a really hard time about stopping, quote unquote, easy goals. But it also seems that by defending the same size goal, women goalkeepers are way more impressive because they're doing a harder job. It's like if the goal is expanded a little bit for guy goalkeepers. I, I think keeping this in context helps to better appreciate and better understand the sporting and athletic feats that are occurring. Are there games where the differences between the sexes are reflected in the rules? Yeah, I mean, I think most sports have slightly different equipment, slightly different rules. I know in volleyball, the net is lower for women than it is for men. In basketball, the ball is slightly smaller, slightly lighter. In shot put and discus, they're also lighter, and it makes it so that, you know, a woman throwing the shot put is going to throw it about as far as men throwing the shot put. And is the the purpose of those differences in rules to make the game more entertaining? Is it to make it safer? What is the reason? I mean, this is kind of an existential question about sport, like what the purpose of sport is. I think a lot of times it's to make it more entertaining in professional sports, especially. You need fans. You want fans to pay money to watch the sport. You want it to be a really exciting and competitive game to watch. And part of that also ties into injury. If people are getting injured all the time, that is a huge financial sink and also just not good for the excitement of the sport itself. So I would definitely say it's a little bit of both. Okay, well, let's get back to football then. Do you think that there should be different rules for the men's game and the women's game? (laughs) That's not a question that I can answer. That's a question for the players. But I was speaking with a researcher. His name is Arve Peterson. He's a professor in the Department of Neuroscience and Movement Science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And he was talking me through this thought experiment that he had. His experiment was, what would happen if we scaled the women's game to kind of be the same as the men's game is, but just scaled down to the relative physiological size and attributes of women. It was a study where they blurred the players and let people watch, and then they rated it as equally good when they didn't know the sex, but when they knew whether uh, men or women were playing, men's performances were rated better. And that's what we try to tell people, that you must see the relative performance and the relative skill, because whatever women do, they have to do it a little differently from men due to biological differences. So what we did, I had been uh, coaching girls for quite many years, among them uh, our daughter. And then I knew and had been playing football also for quite many years. So I knew about the differences. And every time people said that, yeah, this is really poor, 
And I would say, yeah, but it's quite different for that goalkeeper, for example. The goal is so much larger, relatively, for women. So what did Ave find? So he found that like based on speed and leg strength, the pitch should be shrunk down for women a little bit. It might be 10 meters shorter, 10 meters skinnier. He found that maybe the match duration should shorten a little bit. The ball circumference should also go down a little bit. Um, right now, both men and women play with a size 5 ball, but maybe it should go down to a size 4. This is like 10 centimeters in circumference smaller. So uh, about the ball, actually, he found that physiologically, a woman kicking a normal standard size 5 soccer ball is the same as a guy kicking a basketball. There is like a real difference in the physical strength required, um, relative physical strength. So I asked Arve what the impact of scaling down women's football according to these physiological relative differences might be. If you had scale, for example, the ball down, you would probably see more behavior that was more similar to men's. You would see women shooting from longer distances. And they would probably, the passes would be a bit different. Of course, since they have been playing with the same ball as men for so long, they would have to adjust to a new ball. But when they did, probably you would see passing more similar to men. But then again, passing in the air, that involves also the ball's flight in the air, and that would be different. So it might not be so similar anyway. And also passing the ball on the turf would be with the same friction. So then you would have to have different friction, probably. But you would see, and they have done studies, you would see slightly more similar behavior. Is the goal, though, to make women's sport a replica of men's sport? No, not at all. And if uh, people ask me all the time, would you change women's soccer, for example? And I say, if anything, probably men's soccer should be changed. Because when soccer was invented 150 years ago, men were the same size as women today. So then the goal and the right size for the men at that time, and now it's too small for the goalkeepers of two meters in the men's game. Of course, everything is relative. So the shots are harder, they come with a higher velocity and everything is different. But you could say that the goal is relatively too small. And also the pitch is too small for men. Are there problems with comparing the two? Because if you're saying the women's game shouldn't be replica of the men's game, but by looking through them with a lens of relativity, you are kind of comparing the two, right? Is it possible not to compare something if you see a difference? But yeah, I, I don't know, but um, you should see slightly different things and not expect them to be the same. Mm -hmm. As you would, if men and women had competed against each other in the running event or in the high jump, for example, the men's world record is 2.45 and the women's is 2.09. So it's completely different, but we don't compare 
men and women because we know men and women are different. So we appreciate 209 or 20 anything as a really good result. One particularly interesting position to consider that Arve pointed out was the goalkeeper. Something I learned after we wrote the paper, when we calculated, we probably underestimated the difference for the goalkeeper. I think we said the goal would have to be scaled up by some 50 centimeters wider and 20-something higher. It's probably twice that. What was the reason for the underestimation? Uh, Because we just used the height of the goalkeeper. We should have included the reach. And then the reach is quite interesting. They would have to dive to each of the corners of the goal. And then it involves not only their height, but also the leg strength, for example. Okay, so I can see why there's a debate about whether scaling down women's football would make the game more exciting in some ways. But to be honest, the World Cup recently generated a huge amount of excitement. But I suppose underneath it all, is there a suggestion that having the same size pitch, the same ball and the same rules as men could actually be harming women in some way, that are causing more injuries than, than men get on, the, on those pitches and with those balls? So there were a few studies done on soccer balls and heading and concussions. And there was a study in 2018 that found that repeatedly heading a football seemed to harm women's brains more than men's. And I know that there was another study done that found that women get more concussions from equipment to head contact than men do. So, I mean, my gut feeling is no rule should be the same. It, it doesn't make sense that we need to scale it down for poor, fragile women because our bodies can't handle you know, the rules that men use. But if there is concrete evidence that injury could be reduced by using a different size ball for men or for women, right, I I think that is something to take seriously. That's also something I talked about with Arve. The concussion would be the, the good reason for, I think, the good reason for scaling down the ball. But I don't know. I haven't seen enough data yet, but it's relatively so much different and it's much heavier relatively for women and especially girls down to, I think, 13 or 14 would be heading the same ball. It wouldn't have the same speed when it hits the head, but still it's the same weight. Okay, I mean, that's interesting. And as we've explored on the show earlier in the year, more research uh, linking contact sports with concussions is definitely needed. But as you've just referenced, in the studies that have been done, the risks of injuries seem to be much higher for women, probably because the game's rules are based on sports science and studies that were done on men, right? And this is the typical story across science, isn't it? That the work that we use to understand the human body has largely been done on men. Yeah. Amelia Funnell, the head of sports science research at Ida Sports, a shoe company, told me more about knee injuries. In particular, one of the injuries that disproportionately affects women is the ACL injury. Um, This happens when you rotate too fast or you twist something or sometimes it honestly just happens. And these are three to eight times more likely in women than they are in men. So if we're talking like torsional injuries, ACL injuries, there's so many different risk factors. But at the root of it, the stimulus is a force, is a rotational force. We try and kind of lower that rotational traction. But at the end of the day, these studies, like all the sports science studies, like from the old days, is a lot of the times based on these like body mass values and inertia values that were 
kind of researched and decided from studies of like cadavers, right? So like they took body parts and rotated them until they found the force at which the ACL ruptured. And guess what's the population of those cadavers? They were white men. So like the studies, then the core values that are in the literature and research, because you can't do those studies anymore, you know, that was in the old days. We don't have those values for females. So the core of it is kind of missing as well. And I think that's a really important aspect. So we don't exactly know like the force at which females ACLs will rupture. Okay, so reducing injuries does seem like quite a compelling argument to make rules different for men's football versus women's football. But I mean, I'm just curious, does anyone really want to to do this? I mean, you said yourself that you're not so keen if you think about it from a sort of a headstrong point of view. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a super controversial thing. Ask any female athlete pretty much. And it automatically is like danger flags, red flags shooting up, right? There are really important cultural factors at play. It's been a super, super long fight for equality. To be honest, a lot of women's sports still isn't really taken seriously. So by suggesting differences, that automatically is a little scary to people. But there have been sports that have been looking into this. And one of these sports is rugby. Women's rugby is actually the fastest growing part of the game at the moment. And there are studies being started to figure out the difference that maybe a slightly smaller ball might make. And in this case, it's not necessarily about injuries, but about the style of play, making the game more compelling to play and to watch. I spoke to Ross Tucker, a science and research consultant for World Rugby, about this trial. I've met people who say I'm not going to watch the Women's Football World Cup or the Rugby World Cup because I want to watch the, the men's because it's faster and more powerful and stronger. I think that that's unfair. I would argue that we recognize and respect difference without it necessarily implying inequality in the same way, for instance, that I could watch a middleweight boxer and say that's the best athlete in the world, even though I know that that middleweight would probably lose to the best heavyweight boxer. So the direct comparison between men and women isn't fair on women because, you see, they don't have access to an advantage that is uniquely male. And that advantage is basically coming as a consequence of having androgens like testosterone. So I think it's possible and I think quite reasonable to say, yes, they're different, but we can still applaud and recognize excellence of achievement of a uh, Shakari Richardson in World Athletics Championships, uh, Katie Ledecky in a swimming pool, as being just as good as Noah Lyles, as Michael Phelps, even if the performance isn't quite the same when they're compared directly. And is the end goal to have the product look the same, to have the end result sport look the same for men and for women? No, not necessarily. And that's where it becomes a philosophical question where I think you would want to consult the stakeholders and ask them what they want. And certainly in my experience with rugby, there are women who say, absolutely, we want to play a game that looks and feels and is the same as men. And there are others who will say, no, we want to play with the same equipment as men, even if that means that there are consequences or implications for how it feels to play it and what it looks like from the outside. Right now, I'm busy watching the World Athletics Championships in, in Budapest, and I'm constantly seeing differences in equipment between men's and women's events in order for the performance to look similar and to be the same. So for instance, men throw a discus that weighs two kilograms, women one kilogram. They, as a consequence, the winning distance for both is around 70 meters. If 
women were asked to use a discus that weighed two kilograms or they increased the weight of the shot, what it looks like would be profoundly different. And I think as long as people go into it knowing that that's going to be the consequence, then they can have that philosophical discussion. But I think it's a, it's a question women need to answer about their own sporting space. Are there any problems involved with scaling things? In rugby, for instance, if you were to scale it and have a slightly smaller field uh, with a slightly smaller ball, you might change the game in a way that creates welfare implications because it might mean that ball in playtime is higher. It might mean that there are more tackles in a match and the tackle obviously creates the risk. So one would have to go into it understanding that there's always a potential for a second-order consequence. A number of sports in the U.S. have documented higher rates of concussion in women. Interestingly, in rugby, that doesn't happen yet in the elite game. So when we compare elite women to elite men, we see the same rate of concussion per 100 matches. What's interesting there is that a greater percentage of injuries in women are concussions. So in men, I think concussions make up about 15 to 20% of all injuries. In women, it's about 30%. So that in itself tells you that there's something sex-specific about concussions. And so there are definitely implications for injury risk and injury management. Could you tell me a little bit about the World Rugby trial that you're involved in? Yeah, so going back now, before COVID even happened, we discussed at that point with our women's rugby working groups and committees the possibility of trialing a ball that was half a size smaller. And the rationale for that was that women's hand sizes tend to be smaller than men's. And in a sport like rugby, that has implications for the ability to pass the ball, to catch the ball, potentially to kick the ball. And so we explored the idea of doing a trial then where a few competitions around the world would play for a season with a smaller ball. Then, of course, COVID happened and it all got put on hold because everything did. But that conversation has then restarted towards the beginning of this year. And so the trial now is going to look at how playing with a smaller ball changes the game. And it was really interesting that many women don't want to even try it. They would hold the line that they are playing the same sport as the men with the same size ball. But many women were really enthusiastic about it because they say, well, this is going to make it easier to pass. The speed of passing will be faster. Therefore, the game will be quicker. There will be more space on the field. We'll be able to carry the ball with one hand, which means offloads, more line breaks, more entertainment, and a much more open game. So that's kind of the question that we're exploring with the trial. How are you measuring the success of this trial? Is it about those more quantitative measures, or is it about fan excitement, player excitement, reducing injuries, all of the above? Injuries, no, unfortunately, because gathering injury data is really difficult and really onerous. And there are so many factors that affect injury. It's possible that this makes a small difference that is totally drowned out by half a dozen other factors. So what will be done here is going to be a mix of quantitative. A set of matches will be analyzed and the metrics of interest will be compared before and after the change in the ball size. You'll have a a size four and a half comparison to a size five. So whilst you can probably kick a small ball further because it's lighter, your accuracy might be compromised by that smaller sweet spot. So the four and a half is trying to find a compromise between making it so small that the sweet spot diminishes accuracy and making it smaller so that it can be kicked further and also in the hand looks better. So the kick performance will be one of the outcomes in the trial that determines whether it's successful. Then there would need to also be, and there will be a qualitative component where the players and the coaches are assessed 
as to the experience of the ball. I think it's really important. You know, you can solve a lot of these problems in theory and on paper, and then when you take them to the players who actually play the sport, they reject it. So we have to be mindful to consult the stakeholders, and that's not scientists and coaches necessarily, it's the players themselves. We'll come back to Abby's reporting in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder that you can dive deeper into all of our content by taking out a subscription to The Economist. In the science section, you'll be able to read about how new types of super batteries will transform how far electric vehicles will be able to travel on a single charge. You can also read about how scientists are trying to explain what's going on inside the bodies and minds of people who suffer from long-term pain. Babbage listeners can get a month of a digital subscription for free by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Coming up, Abby's conversation with Lauren Herrier, the professional footballer who we heard from earlier. Lauren explains why she's suspicious of the intentions of those who want to change the rules of women's sports. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today on Babbage, we're looking at women's sports. So far, we've explored why the biological and anatomical differences between the sexes often make sports like football a very different challenge for women than for men. We've also seen evidence that the risk of injury for women tends to be higher. But of course, sport is about much more than science. And meanwhile, some much more fundamental issues about women in sport present another barrier – as the whole world got to see just after the World Cup final. The Spanish Football Federation has threatened legal action to support its embattled boss, Luis Rubiales. He's refusing to resign after kissing player Jenny Hermoso, which she says was sexist and not consensual. I think for me as a woman in football, and you've kind of seen it around the World Cup and what's played out afterwards with Hermoso, there are just so many barriers you're constantly facing and some of them are really obvious. So... I think for me as a woman in sport, you constantly are not only fighting to perform on the pitch, but you're fighting to kind of have that right to be in this space. Our correspondent, Abby Bertix, discussed all of this with Lauren Herrier, a professional footballer and an analyst specialising in women's sports, who we heard from earlier. Sometimes I can be quite naive and feel like, oh, we've come so far. But then when you kind of see stats or reports about why girls are dropping out of sport, a lot of it is still self-confidence issues and these sort of issues that should have been addressed and kind of stem from this idea that women don't belong in this sporting space. So I think it's really important we acknowledge the fact that currently girls and women in sport aren't equal to men, particularly in football, we aren't equal. So we need to take an equitable approach and understand what do we need to invest into girls and women's football to start to build up so then we can get to a place of equality. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the biggest part of the issue is off the pitch, there might be issues in terms of investment and resources on the pitch, but it's kind of 
off the pitch in terms of even just something as simple as respect, like the kiss that happened with the president of the Spanish Football Federation. How do you think the reaction has been? Is this like a learning opportunity or it really just felt like a slap in the face, to be honest? Yeah, I think it's awful that we've just had a World Cup final and this is what's dominating conversation. As a woman in football, was I surprised it happened? Yes and no. I think it was really surprising to see it happen so blatantly and on that very public stage. But I'm not surprised to see so many women, girls and clubs stand behind it and call it out because it's completely unacceptable behaviour. And I just think this is one example of it. And I think conversations that happen in boardrooms, conversations that happen in clubs, actions that happen in clubs, like all kind of further this sort of behaviour. So I'm hoping this will just shine a light to people that think, you know, there isn't a problem in women's football. Oh, you know, look how great it is. We're selling out stadiums. We're doing this. We're doing that. But if you just kind of lift the lid a little, there's still so many issues that need to be resolved. Yeah. On the podcast, we've been looking at some studies in science you know, like sports medicine studies. And most of these have been based on white men. Is this bias something you've thought about before? Yeah, I've definitely thought about it. I think when you're growing up playing football, when you're even a senior female athlete, I think it's very evident that things aren't really created for you in terms of the sports science. The last two teams I've played in, Genuinely, people don't say ACL. They're just like the A word. It's like it's like Voldemort or something. Like people are scared to even say the word. And I think probably a lot of that fear does come from that lack of understanding and not really knowing what causes it. And you've got athletes absolutely at the peak of their career suffer these injuries. These are exceptional athletes. You know, they must be doing everything right. Like, why have they suffered this injury? So research is going to be the key to understanding what it is and what's causing it. And I know there's a lot of research going on at the moment. But again, I... I don't think I had a conversation about my period and how that affects me as an athlete until maybe about two years ago. And it's just that whole lack of knowledge or this taboo subject or whatever it may be. So I think it's kind of unavoidable as a woman in sport that you're constantly presented with these pieces of evidence that show you that this space and these techniques of training, whatever it may be, have been created not for you, but they're just trying to adapt them to make it work for you. I mean, there's for a long time been kind of a taboo about discussing menstrual cycle, especially with your sports trainer or your coach. It it just didn't happen. Why do you think that's changed? Is it changing? And why? Yeah, I think it's definitely changing. I think when it comes to things like menstrual cycle, I think the reason we're starting to see it discussed more is athletes are asking for it and athletes are more confident in asking staff for what they need to perform. We've got more women working in a sports science space than ever before and they're wanting to research these massively under-researched areas and these areas that they're passionate about researching and I also think the more women's sport becomes a business and it's very much a business in its own right now and <laughs> look at the world cup the the margin between winning and losing is so fine and the more you understand your athletes and obviously menstrual cycle is a massive part of what it is to be a woman the more you understand your athletes, the more you're going to be able to get that optimal performance out of them. So I think they're kind of the main factors that are driving these conversations and this additional research to understand how the woman's body works in relation to sport and how to get the best out of your athletes. And then I, I have a little more controversial take that I want to bring up. So there was this one paper that was done, the relative physiological differences of women and men. They said, if 
men were playing with like relatively the same size ball as women are, they would essentially be taking around a basketball. First of all, like, what would your gut reaction be to me saying that we should scale women's football down to the physiological size of women? Oh, I just think it's disrespectful. Whenever I hear it, and I hear this a lot, I think it comes back to me of that conversation of enjoying women's football as women's football and not trying to make women's football a version of men's football. Because I think this whole idea of comparison, or, you know, if we make the ball smaller than this or the goal smaller than what are we like, what are we trying to achieve here? Because for me, it just feels like we're trying to create this version of men's football, but it's just women. It's like, oh, how can we get the women's game as close as possible to the men's game in terms of what we deem to be exciting or important elements? I have no interest in that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that was my gut reaction too. But then to play devil's advocate a little bit with the soccer ball size, the football size, there have been studies done that show that repeatedly heading a ball causes more brain damage to women than it does to men. Women get more concussions from doing headers, like head contact with the ball than men do. So what if it's just a matter of injury reduction? If you were able to design a ball for women, because this ball wasn't designed for women, right? Because they didn't think women could play soccer back then or whatever. What if you designed a ball for women that was just safer, reduce injuries, and then the game was able to develop along with it? If we're looking at changes in the game, what's driving it? And again, I kind of come back to this goal size or whatever, or pitch size or length of game. Are we changing it because we think that's going to make it a more exciting product and we're saying the product's lacking something? Or are we changing it because we want to make the game safer for the athlete? And I think if it's a case of making the game safer, we have to listen to certain conversations and we have to understand how can we make it as safe as possible? And there's obviously been so much progression in recent years around concussion rules and protocols. Again, still work to be done. So I think if it's coming from a point of safety, it's an important conversation. It's one that players should be a part of, as well as governing bodies and coaches. I mean, that's an important conversation across men's and women's sport entirely. But yeah, I just think let's not start making things smaller. Let's let the game develop as the game develops. In terms of the actual sport itself and the technical elements of it, it is beautiful. I'm back with Abby Bertix, The Economist, science correspondent. Abby, in trying to answer the questions and issues raised in this week's show, a lot of it seems to come down to how you value sports. So let me ask you, what is the point of sport? Is it to be scrupulously fair to all the players based on their physical abilities? Or is it just to have the same rules for everyone, no matter what, and then just see what happens? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Depending on who you ask, you're going to get really different answers. I think if you're professional, the purpose of sport is to make money and it's to provide entertainment. If you're thinking about sports from a more casual point of view, it's a way to stay in shape, to connect with other people, to have fun. And in that case, it doesn't really matter about the money making or the entertainment for spectators because you're the one playing it. And keeping all of this in mind, questions that you make about rules, whether it's for men's sport, women's sport, it's going to really depend on what you think the purpose of sport is. But regardless, when viewers are watching sports, they should understand the differences between men and women. Because if you're watching Katie Ledecky in swimming, um, and she's like incredibly fast, I think she was like the top 15 times in the 1500 meters. But if you compare her time directly against the fastest male swimmer, she won't win. She's ridiculously good. But you need to like really put things into context, into perspective. And I think that will really help fans and viewers to better value the athleticism and the achievements, not by ignoring the differences, but by recognizing them. 
Abby, that makes complete sense. And um, just to underline your point, um, you know, you're rushing out of this podcast studio. Where are you going to go? Um, headed to volleyball practice. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. And I hope we've not kept you too far away from volleyball. Thank you so much, Alec. That's all from us. Thanks to Arve Pedersen, Amelia Funnel, Ross Tucker, Lauren Harrier, and The Economist's Abby Bertix. And thank you for listening. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and Kanal Patel with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producers this week were Jason Palmer and Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.